WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Exposure is 88.9 The Impact's one-hour forum discussing relevant issues affecting the MSU community. And now, tonight's Exposure. Welcome to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Tonight on Exposure, we have Michelle Carlson, and she's here to talk about Autumn Fest um, at the East Lansing Farmer's Market this weekend. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, so tell me about the East Lansing Farmer's Market. This is the first year you've done it. How's it gone so far? Excellent. Um, we started in July, and we have around 25 vendors um, that come not every Every vendor doesn't come every week, but, and they include local farmers with fresh produce. Some of the vendors are organic, and we have value-added goods such as honey, and someone makes cheesecake, baked goods, fresh fish, um, and different things like that. So it's been really great. So, so usually sometimes you'll have music on the weekends and you have um, a few vendors. Um, what's special about this weekend that you're declaring it Autumn Fest? Um, well, it's autumn. We just decided we wanted to have a festival at our market to um, attract new customers and kind of celebrate the market. We're doing really well and we have four more weeks left and there's a lot of produce right now. So the market is full and... We just thought it would be a fun way to celebrate the community. So we're going to have different events. We're going to have wagon rides and face painting and crafts for kids and um, music. And what kind of music is featured this weekend? Um, our first performer, we have two different performers, is Steve Pigney, and he's a really good acoustic kind of folksy guy. And then second, we'll have Sam Corbin, who many of you might know, play with Jen Siget. So that would be really great. And is everything at the farmer's market local? Yes, local. Um, there is one farmer that comes from the Sioux, but they're all Michigan farmers, and they all produce their own goods um, or grow their own crops and come now, now, I feel farmers markets have been um, really popping up since the summer. For example, you guys started this year, and I th I've been noticing the um, South Lansing farmers market. I think they just started this year as well, and and the Lansing um, farmers market has always been going on. But you know, here they are. There's three different farmers markets going in Lansing alone. Um, why do you think it is that farmers markets are suddenly popping up everywhere, and and people are attending them? It's become, you know, kind of a a thing to do. I think um, you're right. It is a thing to do. It's a good community place for people to come and socialize. It's a good source of fresh grown food. And besides being really fresh, there's really interesting things that you can't get in your local grocery store. Um, so I think people like that. And then the whole goal, local movement, um, the importance of supporting local agriculture. I think people are really educated about that and it's really important. And um, so I think all those three and other factors play together, and it's just coming together. And and how can a farmer's market be important to a community member? Um, I think you, for example, at our market, if you go to the market, there's lots of people there. You run into your neighbors. It's a relaxed atmosphere. You're, you know, you have a chance to talk, so it's a good meeting place and a place to socialize. If you come to the East Lansing Farmer's Market, it's in Valley Court Park, so it's a park setting, and you'll see people just lounging. They'll have a picnic. They'll buy some 
produce and they'll go sit in the grass and listen to the music and just kind of have a nice afternoon there. And what do you think the student to community member ratio is at the farmer's market? Ooh, that's hard to say because it's hard to tell who the students are. But I have, um, we did a couple of weeks ago, we had a promotion. We gave gift certificates to the first 75 um, students. They had to show their student ID and we got rid of all of them. So um, they're coming. And then I met a couple of students that come every week and they really enjoy it. So I think there's a large percentage of students that are coming. I don't know what the ratio would be. Yeah, I think I think you called that weekend the the Spartan Appreciation Weekend, right. and um, I'm a, I'm a mentor in the dorms, and um, I remember a lot of my residents got really excited about that. And being a mentor the, at the beginning of the year, you have to go around, you have to interview people, um, and you have this set of, list of questions. One of which is, what do you love about East Lansing? And most people are kind of like, um, they don't really know how to answer that question. Maybe Grand River. Maybe I like the campus. You know, questions like that. But then there's this one girl who I talked to who said that her that her grandparents live around here, so she gets to go out with them. And she's mm -hmm. like, "Wow, I'm just I just love this community because, you know, for example, she just went to Goodrich's for the first time. This kind of local, you know, grocery store. And she said, you know, she went to the East Lansing Farmers Market. And she's like, you know, people coming together like that in a community." And then she was talking about how, you know, little small revolutions take place within communities where, you know, it, it's communities that start things like, um, you know, water bottles are socially unacceptable. And she's like, I feel like East Lansing has that type of community where you have those farmer's markets and, and things that make it unique and things that, you know, farmer's markets, they start at the community and then you see them blossom all over the U.S. and it becomes, you know, an American thing. Right. But it it's community first. So I thought that was really interesting, a really interesting conversation to have. Um, so again, this is the, uh, I'm talking with Michelle Carlson. Uh, she's representing the East Lansing Farmers Market. And this weekend is Autumn Fest on Sunday, October 4th, um, from 11 to 2 in Valley Court Park. Um, and for more information, you can go to cityofeastlansing.com backslash farmers market. Thank you very much, Michelle, for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. At the football game, Jim shows the telltale signs of being wasted. He starts flexing for the camera. He refers to his muscles as gunboats. He screams, how's this for a halftime show? Jim streaks the field. It's easy to tell if you've had way too many to drive. But what if you've had just one too many to drive? Never underestimate just a few. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime Time. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Sunday nights, check out Sit or Spin from 8 to 10 p.m., where you can voice your opinion on what new music we play here on the Impact. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. Welcome back to Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox, and I have many people in the studio here, and they're here to talk about how MSU is listed as one of the top universities or communities for linking creative, entrepreneurial initiatives in the October issue of Entrepreneur Magazine. Now, can you please go around the table and introduce yourselves and who you represent here in the community? Emily, uh, I'm Mike Potterella. I'm the executive director of MSU Technologies, and it's great to be here with you tonight. Thank you. 
Hi, Emily. I'm Denise Ferguson, and I'm the President and CEO of LEAP, which is the Lansing Economic Area Partnership. Emily, I'm uh, Tom Kelchick, Associate Director of the Michigan State University Product Center. And rounding us out, I'm Tim Dempsey. I'm the Director of Planning and Community Development for the City of East Lansing. Well, welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you. Um, so in this article, it mentioned a lot of, a lot of different... I guess, teams or organizations, um, you guys are included, um, you know, to make East Lansing to be one of the top ten places for, um, you know, entrepreneurial activities or, or places for economic development. Um, why do you think, with that in mind, why do you think East Lansing is considered um, an entrepreneurial town? Well, I think there's a number of things that are happening right now. Uh, one is that we're seeing an unprecedented level of partnerships. The university has done a number of, you know, taken an, up a number of initiatives, and the city of East Lansing, I think, has tried to partner with them and other groups like LEAP to really work together on some of these things so that before, when we had all these separate, maybe, efforts going on, there wasn't that connectivity. I think now there is, and that's putting us, I think, in a whole different uh, level as far as competing with other communities. So I guess, um can you can you can we go around again and talk about how um, your group or business or program is contributing to the fact that um, East Lansing, you know, was a part of the top ten for economic development and, and um, entrepreneurial initiatives? Uh, sure. Uh, at MSU Technologies, we work with all of the inventions and creations that come out of research here at MSU. And so our piece of the puzzle, if you will, is trying to take the products of academic research and uh, work with those that uh, lead to business opportunities and develop those, protect those, patent those, market those, and either license those out to existing businesses or try to form new companies around them. And we partner with everybody here and their organizations to do that. And, and you were described in the article as a tech transfer office on steroids. And we take that as a compliment, <laughs> which I think is how it was meant. Yes. Uh, at LEAP, uh, LEAP's role in this region is essentially to unify the region towards strategic growth priorities. So some of what Tim is mentioning in terms of partnership, uh, our job is to bring everybody together to the same table and get involved in key conversations for growth. Uh, so all the people here represented and many others are involved in that. One of the key areas is entrepreneurship and innovation. So we are here to bring all the players and support to the table to support these initiatives. Uh, there's also uh, MSU is on uh, our board and heavily involved in what we do. And we have seen incredible growth and transformation in the Tech Transfer Office uh, with the announcement of Business Connect and MSU's efforts to reach out into the community and connect into all of those well-aligned resources and partnerships. And I think bringing all that together just uh, greatly increases the chances of success. And the MSU Product Center has been around since 2003 and was really started by a whole network of people in the agricultural industry. Uh, our goal is to help uh, farmers, other people in the food or natural resource business, and now recently added the bioeconomy, to start new businesses or existing businesses to expand. And the only way we can do that is by networking with other people around us. We network with people in the room. We network with the SBTDC, the Small Business Technology Development Centers, and a number of private consultants uh, you know, around the state uh, to, uh, to develop these, these businesses, to help people make an informed decision. And I think one of the reasons that East Lansing is, is you know, marked here is because of the student body. 
I, I think that's very important to have the youth and, and the, uh, you know, the invigorating attitude of, of a lot of the students. Uh, we've helped a few students uh, as they've done plans for businesses, and uh, you find it, it's a great idea. So I appreciate being here. East Lansing, our efforts have been you know, centered around the Technology Innovation Center, which is a business incubator. And the unique thing about that is that we've brought in not only MSU professors, but we have a business that was started by an MSU student. And we're going to evolve that idea into an incubator just for students, the Hatch. So to build on what was said earlier, I think the university has a lot of knowledge. There's a lot of ability and talent here, and what we're just doing a better job of is tapping into that. So I think using that creativity to our advantage is something that, you know, we can do a whole lot more of. Now, on, on the front page of, of Time Magazine this week is a, is a, is a picture of um, Detroit, and a, that's the main article about, you know, how it got to be the way it was, and, they, and then I think the, head, the um, headline, once you open up the paper, says No Town, you know, a spinoff of Motown, and how, um, and, and even I was walking by the newsstand today, and on the front page it was saying, you know, how there's so many, um, you know, homes that are just kind of abandoned and and you hear about the brain drain from MSU students or you know people all over Michigan kind of leaving taking businesses elsewhere and here you see an article like this where it's 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 showing a town here in Michigan where um, you guys are, are helping provide opportunities for for businesses to grow or people to um, you know start jobs or start new things um, so how many opportunities um, do you think here in East Lansing you guys help um, create um, every single year for opportunities for their um, to kind of avoid that that brain drain and, and to have people to have businesses sprouting up um, here in East Lansing. Well, that's a, that's a hard thing to measure the way you ask that question because each of us looks at working with different assets, different opportunities. You know, in our office, one of our key measures for productivity is how many invention disclosures we receive from campus and. It's, there's always a lot of great ideas and great research being done. It's our job to go out and mine the campus to get those in and work with them. And so in the last fiscal year that was concluded at the end of June, we had over 150. Now, not all of those are going to turn into business opportunities, but uh, the name of this game is, is, is getting a lot to work with and then working your way down uh, and working those things through the system so that the ones that matter uh, uh, bear some fruit and, and, and get the support that they need. So for us... Um, that's, that's kind of a key metric, um, and, and the others in the room are going to have different constituencies and different ways they measure their productivity. So you, you have to look at multiple variables, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there is so much in that question, Emily, and one of the things that I think that is critical about this article is we're really, really good at being negative in this region and in this state. And one of the things that I think that was critically important about this article was that it will help us uh, showcase our reality and have that reality catch up to the perception of this region. The perception of the region is really negative. The article showcases the reality. So uh, the media plays a very interesting role in telling all of these bright young minds at MSU that you have to leave. Uh, The reality is very different than that, and we've done a lot of uh, studies in our organization about the number of opportunities historically in the recent past that go unfilled here while students believe they aren't there and go elsewhere to find what they need. So uh, there's a huge media piece to this uh, and a marketing uh, piece to it. Uh, also, the, the concept of tapping into these minds. Uh, what we are really looking at as we develop 
a strategic plan for this region is focusing on those knowledge workers and those innovative entrepreneurial minds. Uh, if you retain those people, they create the jobs for themselves and for other people. So that's really what all of this is about. Well, and, and related to that, just uh, want to add, we have this new uh, huge IBM facility that is opening on campus. Uh, great credit to our administration, President Simon, whose who's leadership really has helped support all of us here in the room and our organizations. But the, the uh, recruitment uh, of IBM here, um, you know, IB, you can do the best recruiting you want, but if you don't have the assets, they're not, an organization like that's not going to come. And I've, I've heard the IBM executive in charge of this speak to that, and he loves the energy. He loves to go to, back to Tom's comment, the fact that we've got a lot of great young graduates who they can tap for their labor force to create these software applications for their big government customers. So there are a lot of great assets here, and I couldn't agree with Denise more. Uh, I think you said we've gotten good at being negative. Well, and that, of course, you're, you said that's not a good thing. We, we, that happens too frequently here. That's a frustration to all of us, and we need to start changing our tune, and I think all of us uh, felt a good shot in the arm here from this great publicity and recognition. Yeah, unfortunately, when you get outside of Michigan, many people think of Detroit as Michigan, and so that article really is meant to, you know, create a, a pall over the whole state. And it's great to see an article like the one in Entrepreneur Magazine come out. Uh, from the product center's perspective, uh, we've helped a, a little over 200 uh, businesses start or expand in, in the state. About a half a dozen of those are in the East Lansing area. And um, you know, what we measure, what, we keep a database, and we measure the, the uh, numbers of businesses that have started, the uh, investment that they make, the number of people that they employ. And, uh, you know, so uh, we have a pretty good record, of, of, you know, track of, of what we do. But, um, you know, so those businesses range from individual ownership, just one person that owns them, all the way up to multi-million dollar um, ethanol plants and, you know, uh, uh, processing plants and so forth. Uh, and, and we're involved in various stages with those, anywhere from doing a business plan up, up to advanced feasibility studies. You know, for a number of years, the state of Michigan was always ranked high in Site Selection Magazine for all of these large employee gains, you know, an expansion that led to 500 new jobs or 1,000. But what we're doing now is we're counting jobs at a much more organic level. We have these smaller companies, smaller, uh, you know, entities that are driven by a couple entrepreneurs. So they might have one or two employees or five or six, but there's a lot more of them that are starting to, I think, come out of the woodwork, that are being developed through these programs or being driven by even the educational process. You know, the focus on entrepreneurship here at MSU is increasing. So we're seeing a much different philosophy in economic development. It's much more about those small companies and about those entrepreneurs. And even though the large employers are still important, I think there's really a shift going on here, and this entrepreneur article highlights that shift. So you think that, that, that the jobs here in Michigan is going to be more about um, coming up with an idea and making it happen versus kind of moving into something that's already been established? Oh, absolutely. I think it's a lot less about, okay, I'm going to go to work for GM. I think I'm going to have lifetime employment. Now I'm going to think about how do I go to work for myself? And even Detroit with its challenges, and I think time will point this out over the next year, you're going to see pockets of innovation there as well. You're, you already do, Wayne State University and the Smart Zone effort down there. And what that highlights, though, is really the fact that educational institutions are the drivers of a lot of this change. Just like MSU is here, 
Wayne State will be in Detroit, Central will be in Mount Pleasant, and so forth. Right. Um, and now, do you know much about the Hatch that's going to happen here in East Lansing? Yeah, the Hatch is a program of the City of East Lansing as well. It's an offshoot of our Innovation Center. And we have an advisory board that consists of entrepreneurs and you know MSU um, players. And what we kind of talked about was that, look, you know, there's a lot of opportunities. We see you know, established entrepreneurs. We see kind of entrepreneurs trying to get off the ground. But what we want to encourage is that happening at an earlier stage. There's a lot of great ideas amongst the student body here at MSU from a business development standpoint. So we want to try to tap into that. And the idea came about, let's have a, you know, business incubator that's centered around those students specifically for them and kind of see how, where that goes. And much like our innovation center, you know, a lot of what you try to put together here is you don't always necessarily know what the outcome will be. You know, our goal was always to help change the culture in the community, to think more entrepreneurially, um, if that's a word. Um, but, you know, with the hatch, we kind of want to see that evolve too and see where that leads. We're not sure where it might lead, but what we want to do is just bring those, those people and those smart minds together. And, um, you know, you were talking about, you know, the, the Time Magazine article about Detroit versus this article in, in Entrepreneur Magazine talking about how East Lansing is, is doing a wonderful job. Um, you know, and this, this idea of brain drain, but is that really a reality? Um, so what, what do you believe that is the future of Michigan's job market, um, especially um, coming from a standpoint being for, for MSU students? What would you tell an MSU student as far as the job market here in Michigan? Well, I think there are going to be a lot of new sectors that come out and are emerging. In this region, we're looking at uh, releasing a strategic plan in November that looks at a lot of new areas, whether it's healthcare or IT. Uh, and I think uh, we will add significantly to our existing sectors that we all know and love uh, with some of these areas. But the important thing, I think, uh, is to talk to the students about their skill set and their approach, uh, sort of the T personality and being able to go broad and get deep in an arena to think like an entrepreneur because a lot of these uh, a lot of these factors that we talk about in terms of changing the culture here uh, whether it's in Lansing or in Michigan as a whole uh, these are global trends uh, so we're going to compete on a much more global scale uh, we m need uh, many more innovative out-of-the-box thinkers we need people that are, are functioning in an entrepreneurial mindset rather than necessarily taking the approach that they're being trained to do a specific thing and be employed by somebody. Uh, so I don't think it's so much about the sector as much as it is about the skill sets and the approach to the education and their skill set. And um, now, now, Mike, you were telling me before uh, the interview started that this is kind of a, a critical mass activity. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, sure. I, I think what I was referring to is the fact that the article really recognized that here in this region, uh, my, my summary description would be that we're getting our act together and we have it together. And you have represented here in this room four of many critical components that lead you to, to draw that conclusion and feel good about what we have here. And um, I also use that term in conjunction with our office move down next to the Technology Innovation Center later this year, trying to create a critical mass of activity on that site. And, and so um, 
what what's good about that is that as you start to get related activity and get to a certain point, you can start to create even indirect jobs then. Uh, so, for example, one of the things I'm sure Tim and I hope for is that after my office moves down to downtown East Lansing, maybe we can attract some service providers, the law firm, some of the other consulting services and related businesses where uh, they see an opportunity to serve those of us who are working in that district. Um, and, and as we continue to, to create critical masses, either of uh, incubator space with startup companies near each other or other related activity, uh, it just allows you to ratchet things up. And, uh, and that's really exciting. And for to be here at this time, many of us know if we continue to work hard and just sort of stay at it, we're going to be able to see, uh, see the fruits of our efforts pay off here in the coming years. Now, is this new label of East Lansing being a place for um, entrepreneurs, is this a new idea? You know, I, I don't think it's necessarily a new idea. I think there's a new focus on it. And by that, I mean we've always had a number of entrepreneurs in the community, but I think they felt somewhat isolated. You know, doing things like incubators and having networking events, bringing them together so they can support each other and there's more recognition of each other out, you know, doing the same types of things, I think has changed how we look at it. But I also think there is a, a definite recognition that we need those types of skills. Like it was said earlier by Denise, you know, we need people that think like entrepreneurs. So having those programs on campus that get students into that mode is really going to help even further that. Now, one other thing that I'd like to add to that is that I think there's a swell going on. And I think, uh, as Tim said, there are a lot of things that are entrepreneurial in nature that have been throughout the region. But what MSU and East Lansing have done together is really brought together all of the right critical components into sort of this entrepreneurial ecosystem with the MSU offices, with the tick, with the hatch, with the events that surround that and the activity that's going on there. It's really sort of the bringing together of all of the parts that create this greater level of excitement in East Lansing. I think one of the things we overlook is that we are, you know, this is cyclical. Back in the 20s and 30s, Michigan was very entrepreneurial. It, you know, it was the Silicon Valley of, of the United States at that time. Yeah, good point. And, uh, and, you know, so we've evolved through a manufacturing mindset, and now we've got to recreate ourselves again and get back to that entrepreneurial mindset. And, uh, you know, as we've talked here, uh, you know, a number of, of smaller businesses, uh, you know, we're not going to employ thousands of people but a number of smaller businesses in a community might be more stable than one large business. Now, while we wrap this up, um, I'd like you guys to reintroduce yourself again for those listeners that may have just tuned in and, you know, the, the programs, businesses, or offices that you represent and where people can go for more information um, about your programs. Well, should I let Tim start since I've started every one yes. of these? Sure. <laughs> I'm Tim Dempsey. I'm the Director of Planning and Community Development for the City of East Lansing. And you can go to thecityofeastlansing.com and find lots of information about the Technology Innovation Center and other economic development efforts. And I'm Tom Kalchik with the MSU Product Center. You can find more information at our website at www.productcenter.msu.edu, including a program we're putting on in, uh, on November 11th called Make It In Michigan. 
And I'm Denise Ferguson with LEAP, the Lansing Economic Area Partnership, and you can find more information about us at leapincorporated.com, and incorporated is spelled out, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm Mike Potterell, Executive Director of MSU Technologies, and for more information, you can go to our website at www.technologies.msu.edu. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for coming on the show and helping shape East Lansing. Thank Thanks you. For thank you. Us. Thank you. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place. All the gamers look at you as a game member, too. For some, just being in school can be a struggle. I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles, inside every high school student is a graduate. People look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't. Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's Progressive Torch and Twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, the Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. Welcome back to Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. And in the studio, I have MSU alum and former East Lansing Mayor Sam Singh, and he is here to talk about a 17th-month journey around the globe. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Emily. Glad to be here. So why, why did you decide to do this trip? Well, it was one of those things I've uh, been dreaming about doing something like this. When I was 12 years old, I started what I call a world list, uh, just places I wanted to see. Eventually, I added events uh, to that, and over time... I kept doing these one at a time, you know, once a year, do an event or go see uh, one of the things on my world list. And I just was getting concerned that I was never going to have the opportunity to see it all and do it all. And so when my term was ending as mayor of uh, East Lansing, I thought, you know, this is a great opportunity to make that type of transition. I'd saved up resources to get a master's degree and uh, thought, you know, instead of getting my MBA, why not get my master's in the world? And so I used those resources and spent the next 17 months backpacking through all seven continents, uh, 46 different countries, and uh, just really seeing the things I've wanted to and meeting different people from different cultures and just getting a, an experience in a, a, a bigger global worldview. And, and speaking of your global uh, worldview, that you're um, presenting, um, you know, your stories um, at 7 p.m. October 1st at the Hannah Community Center. And it's an event called Fostering a Global Community. Um, is it just going to be you speaking or is it um, a panel of people? Well, it's going to be me talking about a, a number of things. One of the things will be talking about my journey, the things that I saw a uh, couple of things that were just uh, amazing opportunities. Uh, I was obviously gone during 2008, which was just an incredible year uh, to begin with. But I saw the presidential elections from the beginning of the primaries all the way to inauguration in so many different countries. And so I want to just kind of share what people saw and what people thought and the conversations I had. Also, we saw the economic downturn. I was in Hong Kong right at the beginning of the Lehman Brothers. And so here I am in the financial you know, center of Asia and seeing the, the world recession uh, begin and the impact of American policies and how quickly and rapidly they impacted the rest of the world. So I want to talk about some of those things. But more importantly, 
we're starting a conversation about what we can do as a community, whether it's East Lansing, Lansing, or a university to be a more global community. Since we are in this global environment, having a, a global economy, what can we do to, uh, one, make our students more prepared, uh, whether they're coming out of our school systems, what we can do to help uh, encourage more uh, Michigan State students and LCC students to uh, do study abroad programs, what we can do to encourage immigrants to start businesses, uh, how we can be more welcoming to uh, international communities. So that's the second part of our uh, the conversation with the audience will be what can we do as a community to be better prepared and be more welcoming to the international community. And I think that's an important time to talk about it because also if you look at the at the numbers of people entering into MSU, it's becoming less people, you know, from, from Michigan per se, and the international students have just been skyrocketing as well. So to be working with those types of people and understanding and, um, like you said, creating a worldview. Um, now you also volunteered on your trip. I did. Uh, one of the things I wanted to do, uh, I used to work with nonprofit organizations, I actually still do, and that I always felt was a, was a great opportunity to learn was just by doing things with people in the community. And I had the opportunity to work with Habitat for Humanity. It's one of the organizations I, I've enjoyed working with. But I did experiences in uh, Costa Rica, India, as well as Romania with them. And it's just a powerful learning experience when you're working hand-in-hand -hand with people in the community, learning about their issues, and then volunteering of your, of your time. It's one of the things that I've been really hoping to, uh, to help promote a little bit more is just this international volunteering. It, we can do a lot as Americans. So there's a lot of misperceptions, and you know, I think over some of the past uh, decade or so, our, our standing in the international community has declined. And uh, I think we can be individual ambassadors uh, as we travel, and some of that could be through volunteerism. Some of that could just be by... Uh, engaging with other organizations uh, such as the Rotary Clubs and the Kiwanis and so forth. So I think there are ways that we as American citizens through citizen diplomacy can really help b bolster the, uh, the image of our country. Now, what, what things do you wish the U.S. had that other countries have that you experienced while you traveled? Well, I, I think if I look at public transportation. Uh, so many places have, uh, you know, wonderful public transportation systems. Uh, and that's something in this country, certain cities have it. Uh, unfortunately, in our state here in Michigan, uh, that's something we don't have. But, you know, really how you develop community around transportation and how you, you know, kind of stop this urban sprawl from uh, occurring uh, across the uh, the country, across the state. So that would be one thing. Uh, two, I think just the commitment to higher education. When I was in India and China, just seeing the number of resources that are being put towards higher education by the governments. And now we're here in the state of Michigan, and you know we're hearing about the cuts that our state legislature are going to put towards higher education once again. So here are other communities in other countries that are actually investing in higher education and actually growing their economies. Our economies are declining, and what are we doing? We're cutting education. So I think there's a lot of things to learn from uh, other parts of, of the world and how they utilize some of their resources and their tax base. Now, to kind of switch gears a little bit, um, a lot of people, when they when they graduate college, even you said you wish you would have taken that year off and, and traveled when you were younger. So that's why you felt like you really wanted to do it later in life, sure. too. Um, and so what, are you, what is your advice for people who, when they graduate, they want to go on that, you know, 
six-month or four-month trip, you know, backpack around the world. Um, what's the best way to go about organizing such a trip? What, what's, what's the best way to make the best use of your time? Well, I think a person has to really know themselves and feel comfortable with uh, taking on something like that. Obviously, the resources become the first thing that people need, and uh, obviously saving up enough resources is something that everyone will have to take a look at. But for me, I guess I would just recommend to people trying to test themselves and uh, stretch themselves uh, as they as they travel. Go to places that you might not be familiar with. Go to places that uh, uh, that might help your professional career or f- uh, future uh, educational pursuits. Uh, I know for myself uh, with some of the work that I'm uh, doing currently right now, it was great to be in, in places uh, to learn about uh, the culture to learn about uh, the nonprofit sector in those countries, and that was one thing I wanted to make sure I had. So I had a mission. So it wasn't just traveling for travel's sake, but have a mission as you're going through uh, these countries. So you're also learning at the same time of enjoying the experience itself. Now, what was your fi- your most memorable moment of the entire trip? There's so many, it's really difficult to say, but I think for me it's just the the reminder of how important the political process is, especially the American political process to the rest of the world. And I think sometimes we take that for granted. We take a look at some of the decisions that we make as a country and just think it impacts ourselves, but the reality is it impacts the world. And just watching this presidential election through the eyes of over 20 different countries and the people that I would encounter it just made me, uh, just reminded me of the importance of the decisions that we make and that we need to be kept to a higher standard because the decisions that we have and the decisions that we make impact the rest of the world. And there is nothing more dramatic than this economic downturn that, you know, again, there's, these were policies of our own uh, government, uh, our own businesses that then turned into a world recession. And so that's just a reminder of us to, to make sure that we are are not only selecting the right people to be in leadership, but making sure that the decisions that we make are, are not only uh, focused on our own country, but the world. Now, again, I'm talking with Sam Singh, um, an MSU alum and former East Lansing mayor. Now, after going on a 17-month journey visiting 46 countries, uh, what do you what do you what are your plans now? Well, it, I came back uh, because Michigan is home. I was born and raised in the state, and even though we're going through some uh, you know difficult economic times, I wanted to get back into uh, the work that I was doing. So I'm uh, working now with a group of foundations in southeastern Michigan that are focused on uh, economic development and accelerating the the change from the automobile industry to uh, the knowledge base economy. I'm doing work here in mid-Michigan with uh, the census and reminding nonprofit organizations and the communities about the importance of the census coming up in 2010. And so those are two of the initiatives I uh, embarked on as soon as I, I came back. I'm a consultant uh, by trade now working with a group called Public Policy Associates, which is based here in Lansing. But they have me doing work both in Detroit and here in the region. Well, thank you very much, Sam Singh, for coming on the show. Again, I was speaking with MSU alum and former East Lansing Mayor Sam Singh about his 17-month journey around the globe. And again, he's um, talking at an event at 7 p.m. October 1st at the Hannah Community Center, and that is called Fostering a Global Community. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. 
Attention shoppers, if anyone is missing a rather plump set of love handles, please come to the customer service counter and claim them. The ample love handles were lost in the produce department where their former owner had purchased fruits and veggies to munch on during the big game. Thank you and have a good day. Small step number 81, snack on fruits and veggies. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to get healthy. Learn more at www.smallstep.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Saturday nights from 8 p.m. until 2 a.m., tune into the cultural vibe to hear the best in both local and national hip-hop, plus live mixing on the ones and twos. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. Welcome back to Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. And in the studio, I have Adam Porter and Stephanie Santoro. And they're here to talk about uh, an event they're helping put on this week um, regarding invisible children. Um, it's going to be Thursday at 7 p.m. in Kedzie. And um, I guess the best way to introduce invisible children is to play a little audio clip that I have acquired Three of us boys from California wound up in northern Uganda. We saw incredible horror and encountered heartbreaking suffering, especially among the children who slept in the streets for fear of abduction. We first told the story of our experience in northern Uganda in a documentary called Invisible Children. It explains our discovery of the longest running war in Africa, where night commuters flee from the rebel leader Joseph Kony. Because of this war of madness, people are living without jobs and children can't go to school. To restore hope in a war-torn area, we created a microeconomic bracelet program. This campaign gives a name and a face to the children affected by this war. The proceeds from the bracelets go back to Uganda to provide the children with mentors and put them into school. We then recruited other youth to spend several months on an adventurous road trip in RVs, showing this documentary across the United States on a national tour. Over two million people saw the film. Many were moved to act, and to capture their energy, we created a nationwide event called The Global Night Commute. And on April 29th, 2006, 80,000 Americans left their homes and slept in their downtown city districts, just like the Invisible Children in northern Uganda. Bobby, Laren, and I will never forget the first night we saw the kids sleeping at the bus park. It changed our lives forever. We never realized that so many children could go unseen, that so many beautiful faces could be invisible. And again, um, for those listeners out there, that was a clip um, about invisible children. Um, you guys here in the studio, we can't actually hear what was going on, so you guys didn't really hear it. But um, <laughs> it was—they were talking about how it's—it's—it's—it um, it was a war that's been going on for about 23 years now, and it was discovered by three people that just kind of graduated uh, college and got got their. Um, you know, there were quarters out there, and, and we're the first ones to discover this. And since then, it's really been kind of um, a, a movement led by youth. Uh, they talked about the global night commute in which uh, 80,000 people slept in the, in the streets to represent what children have to do every night, in which about, I think it was 200,000 people every night would, would walk uh, three to five miles to sleep in 
um, the basements of, of hospitals or, or whatever it was to, um, uh, to, to, to prevent being abducted at night to become child soldiers. Um, they talked about a bracelet but campaign, you know, trying to get these businesses going. Um, and they talk about the roadies in which we'll, we'll experience this week where um, people get in these vans and they tour around the country and let people know about it. So tell me about what, what we can expect on Thursday. Um, well, with the roadies, I mean, you, they said a little bit about what the roadies do. They're going to arrive and pretty much give a really good detailed explanation about what's going on now in northern Uganda and what the um, invisible children are really doing. And they're also going to play a movie called Together We Are Free, which is their most recent documentary that Invisible Children has put out there. Um, uh, also <laughs> along with that afterward, we'll be having um, a discussion about um, you know, what we here at Michigan State can do, what we here in America can do um, to help this this awareness get out there of what's actually going on in the world around us. And, and what can people do? Um, there's tons of things you can do. I mean, you can just get involved in organizations like Invisible Children, um, and they have lots of, like, money, money, money um, donating type things where you can donate money and it will help. You can get involved with the pop political aspect of it and, um, like, you know, write your senators and all that and um, try to change the try to change the world that way there's currently a bill trying to be passed that will um make obama's administration be forced to help um the people of uganda africa and eastern africa and force them to get involved politically into the war that's going on so there's quite a few ways you can get involved and you guys also have a group on campus don't you yeah it's called uh spartans who inspire change or swick we call it swick for short um and we do lots of awareness activities and um, events that will promote change for the world for the better by like encompassing groups like Invisible Children or um, Link, which helps the people of uh, Northern Korea um, and just helping them out on the college level. We really act as the catalyst to get in between these big organizations and Michigan State University. And where can people go for that information? Um, SWIC, you can just email us if you want. Swick, MSU, at gmail.com, and that's S-W-I-C. And again, this event is on Thursday at 7 p.m. in Kedzie Hall. Is it room 109? It's, yeah, yes. South Kedzie 109. And thank you so much, Stephanie and Adam, for coming in and talking about Invisible Children. And up next, um, we have MSU student Andrew Norman, and he will read a short story about knitting lessons um, he received while volunteering at a nursing home. My name is Andrew Norman. I'm a second-year master's student studying environmental journalism. This story is called The Knitting Lesson. The dozen or so ladies in the nursing home activity room, all in wheelchairs, laugh and tease the nurse acting as bingo caller when she tells them to put their bowls in their chips. Bowls in your chips, they say in near unison, looking around to see who else they've amused. In this group, I find Donna, who's agreed to give me some pointers on knitting, something I took up on a whim only the week before. She's stuffing her bingo cards into a small bag, and at first doesn't seem to notice me. I try to help a tiny lady next to her put on a blue sweater. Her arms are so frail, I'm afraid they may snap sliding through the sleeves. Donna sees me struggling and moves over to help. She's clearly younger and stronger than the others. She moves the woman's body to put one arm through, then the next. Then she stuffs the woman's pillow behind her back with a firm pat. The woman who won the last round of bingo waits by the elevator. 
She's giddy and childish, singing the opening lines from the 1920s song, Has Anyone Seen My Gal? Five foot two, eyes of blue. The bingo caller and two other aides are moving busily to help residents to their rooms for nap time. The employees here all seem to speak slower, and in decibels louder than in other social settings. Julia, want to go home and call Dennis? Okay, Caroline and Martha. As the last resident is wheeled from the room, Donna and I sit facing each other at a teal card table that is also the color of the walls, which are streaked black from wheelchair tires. A TV across the room blasts on full volume, and the heater emits a continual fuzzing sound into the room. Every ten seconds or so, an alarm beeps softly out in the hallway. Donna digs out two long, purple knitting needles from her large sewing bag. She drops one of the brass needles and it tinks onto the linoleum. I pick it up and hand it to her. I show her my first work in progress, a thin, black stub of a scarf only about five inches long, randomly narrow and wide at different points. I expect her to laugh at me. Oh, you dropped some stitches, she says. She reaches into her bag and pulls out a crochet hook. That's why when you drop a stitch, you need one of these and you can pick it up. She grabs my short, wooden needles and shows me how to hook the loose stitch, then pull the loose yarn through the loop and pull it back onto the needle. I use them all the time, she says, even us professionals. I'm not sure if she's patronizing me. She's been knitting since she was a kid, when her mother taught her. I stab a loop with my right needle, wrap the loose yarn around its tip, pull it back through, and slip the loop off the left needle, slowly moving the scarf onto the right needle. Stab and wrap, pull and slip. Donna adjusts herself uncomfortably in her chair. I ask her what she's working on. It's white with intricate patterns of pink, yellow, purple, green, and blue. This here is a bed blanket, or it'll be a bed blanket when I get done with it, she says. She's making it for Helen, the little lady who needed help with her sweater. She's in her latter stage, and she gets cold a lot, so I figured this would keep her warm, she says. Donna gives away everything she knits anymore. Why not? She's not going to use them. I've got an air conditioning going in my room because it's so hot in this place, she says. I tell her I notice it's a little warm. Stab and wrap. Pull and slip. Well, they have it set on 80 or 90 degrees, she says. A lot of the older residents get cold easily because they're on blood thinners. She makes lap blankets for wheelchairs and gives them to the bingo store as prizes. Wednesday is card day. On Friday, she attends an art class. They wouldn't let us call it a paint clinic, she says. But even though she seems disappointed that she only won three games today, bingo is her sport. She plays it Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, and again on Tuesday night. She and her father worked bingo matches for 15 years. And regardless how bad I hurt, I always go to bingo. I can be dying and I go to bingo, she says. Donna's arthritis goes all the way down her spine from her neck, across her shoulders and down to her hip. She has gout in her feet and hands, along with arthritis and tendonitis in her hands. She has fibromyalgia throughout her body, and she has neuropathy in her left leg. And right now, I'm suffering so bad because my rib cage is out of whack, and I have to get my back cracked to get it back in place, she says. She can't do it this week, because she has to go have her esophagus stretched. Last time she went to the hospital, the doctors at the nursing home removed a lot of her pain medicine. She says she's been fighting with the doctors to get it back. Because I can't keep going on like this, being in pain. Donna complains that one of the two physicians who make weekly visits from Detroit won't even sit and talk to her. And you know, we've got questions we want to ask too, just like the regular patients do in Detroit, she says. We want answers too, we just don't seem to get them. And I'm just tired of hurting so bad. Donna will have lived here a year this coming Saturday. She says she checked herself in, taking herself out of her daughter's hands after the last mini-stroke. I says, I don't ever want to see that look again. Her daughter was scared, she says. And she thought she was hiding it, but it was written all over her face. My hands came up like this, and they were all distorted. Donna holds up her palms and points her fingers at me. During another stroke in November, she couldn't talk for about an hour. I ask her what she remembers from that time. I was conscious, but you get into a state to where your mind is thinking of the worst, and you hear people talking in the background, and to where you can't really make out what they're saying. 
My vision was fuzzy. My tongue felt like it was that thick. She holds her fingers out about three inches apart, and I couldn't stick it out my mouth. All I could picture is myself being like that, and I didn't care for it. Mind if I go turn down that TV, I ask? Uh-huh, you can shut it off as far as I'm concerned. When I come back, she's holding my needles. All I can tell you is be patient, because when I first learned, I was dropping stitches, she says. I still drop stitches this very day, but if I can't go back and pick them up, I just go on. She mentions crocheting, and I tell her I've never done it. You haven't? She turns around and wheels herself to the door. Let me go out and get that blanket, she calls over her shoulder. She leaves me alone in the now-empty activity room, silent except for the heater's slow hum and the regular beeps in the hallway. After about 20 minutes, she returns with the blanket hanging out of the bag that is hooked to the handles of her wheelchair. She shows me how a crochet stitch is bigger than a knit stitch. She knocks a cough drop to the floor, and I pick it up for her. My nurse, she says I should be in bed. She just gave me a pain pill, so it should take effect shortly, she says. Donna likes living here, especially since she moved to what she calls a private room. She used to stay with a woman of 107 years, who was only with it sometimes, she says. And then other times she's back in the horse and buggy days. And then she sees people who aren't there, and it gets you kind of worried. Donna's daughter visits twice a week and usually brings her grandsons. One is 15, but she says he thinks he's 25. Then I've got one that's 19 that thinks he's a man, and he doesn't even know the meaning of the word. He found his dad hanging from a tree, she says. And so he felt, well, he's going to be a tattooist and take over dad's business. He went to Oklahoma for an apprenticeship, and... They told him his work wasn't worth nothing, she says. They didn't have to bust his bubble completely, but they did. After he finished brooding, he decided to return to school to be an electrician. He's finally got his stuff together. He doesn't have any idea how happy it made me, she says. Donna mentions she's just waiting for the pain pill to kick in. She's been waiting all day. I hold up my knit and ask her why it got wider and thinner. She takes it from my hands and tells me I should count my stitches at the beginning, and she teaches me a trick to correct a double stitch. Knitting another row, I ask her about her childhood. She was the youngest of three kids, all born and raised in Lansing, Michigan. Her sister was born at home, and the doctor was busy not paying attention and ended up hitting her head on the bedpost, and he paralyzed her, she says. And she never walked and never talked. She died when she was 20 and 59. Donna talks of tough times when her parents would borrow money from a loan company for Christmas presents, then borrow from another loan company to pay it off. Then they'd have to borrow again to pay off the last one. But there was always plenty of love and warmth in her family. Her mother stayed at home until the kids were grown, and she would stop whatever she was doing to play cards with them, Donna remembers. Her father drove a truck for Oldsmobile. He'd come home late from work some nights, and Donna would still be struggling with homework. It's 11 o'clock, and you've got to get up at 7, he would tell her, so you best get to bed. When she woke up the next morning, her finished homework would be sitting on the table. Donna did just about every kind of work that came her way. She sold shoes at a department store, ran a snack bar at a discount house, worked as a car hop, and at a food market. But caregiving was what fulfilled her. She started by helping her mother care for her sister. She later worked for a nursing home and eventually was trained as a certified nurse assistant. After divorcing her husband, she met her fiancé, Ron, and they started up a home care service. Donna took care of her own father until he died in 1984. She dated Ron 15 years before he died in 1994. Her family had six funerals that year. There were five funerals in 2000, including her mother, and three more in 2002. It's been a rough haul, she says. It's just like I've lost my whole family. She says she doesn't want to get too attached to anyone because she's afraid they'll die. She's not as sharp as she used to be. The strokes have left her with vascular dementia. Sometimes you can remember everything, she says, and then there are times when you can't remember nothing. I just can't tell them what I want to say, and it's very frustrating. I know it comes with age. I'm not as young as I used to be, or as active. Roller skating used to keep her thin. The most I weighed was 125, she says. But then Ron died, and all of a sudden, boom, my health just went downhill. It was because of the way he went. He didn't seem sick. She'd taken him to a hospital a month before, and the doctor said his heart sounded like that of a 16-year-old boy, but he died of a coronary artery. 
The doctors told her it wasn't his heart, that he had pancreatitis. He didn't even have that, she says. It was his heart all along, three blocked arteries. He just turned 52 when I lost him. It's lonely at times, she says. Sometimes I get down, not really depressed, but down because he's not there. She changes the subject. She asks if I remember Kelly, the nurse who was calling bingo. Her fiancé died recently, two weeks before their wedding. She asks me, she says, how long does it take to get over it? And I says, you never get over it. But I says, you learn to live with it. She says, how? I says, just by taking one day at a time and just by being thankful for the memories, I says. That's all you can do. A nurse walks in and asks us to wrap it up. Looking at my slightly longer, still deformed black scarf, Donna leaves me with a final tip. I should start with lighter colors. The darker colors are harder on the eyes. She finishes a row, places her material into her bag, hooks it onto her chair, turns around, and wheels toward the door. Thank you for your time, Donna. Uh-huh, any time, she says over her shoulder. Stab and wrap, pull and slip. I don't leave until I finish my row. And that was Andrew Norman with his story, Knitting Lessons. And if you're a writer and have a story to tell, you can email me at exposure at impact89fm.org, and we can air it here on Impact Exposure. And again, thank you for tuning in to Impact Exposure. And up next is Progressive Torch and Twang with your host, Doug. <laughs> 